and welcome to The Dirt, in partnership with Marsha's Garden. We're the podcast that digs deep into the gardening world. I'm Laura, editor of Grow Your Own magazine. And I'm Laura's co-host, Blake. We'll be discussing a new horticultural science project from the RHS and sharing some seasonal jobs on the plot ahead of spring arriving in the garden. But before we get to that, we're joined today from Buckinghamshire by kitchen gardener Jojo Yee. Welcome to The Dirt, Jojo. Hi Blake, how are you? Yes, really good. The sun is poking its way out through the clouds, which is lovely and we know that spring isn't far away, so very good. How are you? Oh, not too bad. You know, yeah, you're right. It's only a, uh, a week away until spring. So yeah, really looking forward to it, actually. We've had quite a bit of snow, haven't we? So yes, it's felt like a very long winter this year, I think, with yeah. you know, lockdowns and stuff. So yeah, that's right. looking forward to it more than ever. Yeah, although, have you seen the um, forecast for this week? I think there is some sort of like frosts. Oh, no. <laughs> Exactly. Apparently the coldest, I think, March in a few years. So. Oh, goodness. So how are things in your garden at the moment? Are you all set for spring? Well, you know, I've started sowing some seeds indoors um, at the moment. So peppers, um, tomatoes, um, things like that. Um, so um, that's going. Um, in outdoors, I've actually got quite a lot going. Um, overwintered produce mostly. Mm-hmm. So um, there's quite a bit of... Um, Chinese celery in the garden, which I'm still picking. Mm. Um, I've got watercress in the greenhouse, which has been quite remarkable, actually. I've just been growing those in pots um, over some water. But um, I'm picking them, you know, now, and it's great this time of the year because you haven't got caterpillars um, kind of munching away at them. Mm. Um, And there's also quite a lot of, like, lettuce, um, you know. Yeah, there's a bit – there's still a bit growing, to be honest overwintered carrots. Oh, that's always lovely to have some stuff to to see you through again, isn't it? Well, yeah, exactly. So, um, you know, it's sort of, um, I'll be clearing out that and then, you know, starting, I guess, um, all these tomatoes and peppers, they will go out to the greenhouse soon, although not this week, obviously. Mm. But um, yeah, it's starting, it's kicking off, isn't it? Yeah, you know, it certainly it's just, is. Um, yeah, but it's, it's hard to get motivated, I must admit, you know, with this cold weather. Yes. So, you know, um, I think it's fine. I've got sort of um, like mustard leaves as well, which have been really, really useful. Mm. Um, quite, they just grow. And the, the biggest problem I found actually over winter is the um, the slugs. I don't know what it is. I've just had, you know, slug damage. Um, they just completely sort of, even in like minus four degrees, they seem to be really, really active. Mm. I just can't quite work out why. Oh. <laughs> I mean, I think they should be dormant, but anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Some very, very hardy slugs there. Just... Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, so before we dive into the dirt, as as the podcast suggests, um, in the garden, we like to start off a little bit more gently. And we want to ask you about some of your biggest successes in the garden. Ah, um so you know I think um I think when you start off the growing year you're always going to be you know having some you know objectives aren't you for the coming year so and then when you meet them you can say oh wow you know that was a a huge success story for myself um so I I like to do that as well and um I think last year I, I had this goal that um, I would try to extend my um, tomato harvest period Mm -hmm. so you know and really kind of stretch it out so not to be just picking um, tomatoes from July August and then through September but then you know um, stretching it out into October and then November as well Mm -hmm. Um, and that was my goal last year I was (laughs) 
quite sort of adamant that that is what I wanted to do um, in the greenhouse. Um, So, um, and, you know, I think I I managed to do it. Um, It was a little tricky, but I I usually grow um, a variety called Sun Gold. You know, Mm -hmm. I mean, it's it's quite a well-known one. Um, But if you want to, I guess, stretch the, the harvest period into November, it is better to pick something, you know, that is a smaller sized tomato, a cherry sized like a sun gold, uh, because then obviously they will ripen um, uh, before winter. But um, in the greenhouse, um, I grow sun gold using the cordon method. Um, And, you know, um, that is, you know, just supporting the main stem and then pinching out side shoots as you go along. Um, And then I typically stop my plants between sort of four to six trusses is when I would pinch out the tops. Um, in the raised bed, I would, you know, f- sort of go at five or six and then in pots four. But with the sun gold, so what I do is, um, you know, I pinch out the tops at like five trusses, say. Yeah. And then um, and then I um, I sort of, you wait and you pick the fruit as it ripens. Um, but um, then I kind of go into this kind of what I like to call um, truss counting mode so I, I I count the trusses and you know I guess if we work on the along the principles of you know a, a plant having kind of optimal growth at between you know four to six trusses at any one point so that is how it sustains you know and and is the most ef- effective with producing good sized fruit mm-hmm. then you know once you've started to pick the the fruit on the lower trusses um, you can then start to allow some of the side shoots to um to, to grow so if you've got, you know, once you've started to pick down the bottom, you can then um, let side shoots grow from the top um, and, you know, from the elbows where you've previously pinched them out. Um, and those ones, if you sort of have four new side shoots, you know, kind of like midway through summer, um, and then just let those develop. Um, and they'll be very, very long, um, long, you know, like octopus legs long um, and those will develop sort of new fruits. Um, and then you can, you know, allow those to develop and um, be picking all the way through to October, November. That's that's just, you know, my my sort of experience anyway with sun gold. Um, that's such a good tip. Mm. Yeah. Um, and I think um, what I would add, though, is um, speaking of these kind of long octopus arms, they will be very long and fragile. Um, and so you will need some sort of horizontal support mm-hmm. structure, you know, using bamboo canes or something like that. Um, to allow them to kind of drape across. Um, Otherwise, but, they'll just snap off. Mm. Yes, yes, they will. Exactly. Um, and so, but you can do this. Uh, it is quite effective. But the other thing you have to really be careful of is, is obviously when you get to October, November, there's really low uh, short days mm-hmm. um, and it gets, the temperatures do drop. So you can have quite a lot of disease kind of creeping into the greenhouse. Right. And um, for me personally, I, I really think like pruning back leaves and, and just keeping foliage to a real minimum, you know, by that point. Uh, I actually prune foliage. I don't know about you guys, but I, I prune foliage all the way through summer, especially in the lower parts of my plants. Yeah, I do the same just because otherwise it, I find that it turns into a bit of a jungle and mm. I just don't really have the room. But as you say, it's good for... Um for trying to keep those pests and disease down, I think, by yeah. not by letting the air get in and in amongst the plants. So. Absolutely. So I, I tend to do that. So I prune, you know, all the lower leaves. And as soon as I've picked, you know, the fruit off the truss, then the leaves down at the same level will go. Mm-hmm. Um, but then, you know, come sort of late summer, um, I really start 
pruning back any any leaves that look like they might have disease or you know if blight starts to um, appear in the garden then it's really vital I think to to be on top of it by October November I would say my plants are looking the vines are pretty much bare there are there are you, you struggle to find a leaf on <laughs> I mean <laughs> you know they are pretty much just fruit kind of ripening on a vine you know yeah. but um, so. They don't have to look pretty as long as they're being productive, right? <laughs> well, exactly. And, and as I say, because there's so little sunlight, you know, you're not really sort of, you know, the plants really are not growing, you know, yeah. it's, it's ripening off the fruit and the warmth within the greenhouse seems to ripen them as long as your fruit is set before you, you close down your greenhouse for the, for the season, because I think you tend to close up, don't you, around, um, you know, October mm-hmm. when it starts to cool down. But um, the fruit, if the fruit is set by, say, sort of like September, you know, the, on these new sort of late season uh, trusses, if you want to call them that, then, then you know, you can be picking these ones in October, November. Yeah, no, that's that's really great. And I think anything that can extend the tomato season is always going to be a winner because it's it really is one of the high points in the gardening calendar, isn't it, once you can start picking tomatoes? Oh, absolutely. And, you know, I um, I would not grow... I would not go a year without, you know, growing tomatoes mm-hmm. and, and definitely not a year without growing sun gold. I think they are my just absolute favorite tomato to grow. I just, yeah. I just really like them. Do you, do you like them? Yeah, I love them. None of them ever make it back to the house to be perfectly <laughs> honest with you. <laughs> just snack while you're gardening. <laughs> they do, don't they? I mean, they're such a great snacking tomato. You know, they're really sweet, sort of like high on the bricks rating, 9.3 or something. Yeah. And then they've got those kind of savory notes as well. Um, you know, just perfect for salads or just snacking on. But I mean, we should sort of do like almost like a, you know, the way they, they describe wines and, and have a wine tasting. We could have like a tomato tasting. Yes. yes. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And you could just describe all the notes in there, you know, apricots or peach kind of under well, under notes or whatever they want to call it, and describe the terroir, you know. Yeah, yeah. I do like this idea. <laughs> Getting carried away. <laughs> um, so bringing you on to the other side of the gardening coin, really, um, would you be able to tell us about any of your biggest gardening fails or funny accidents or things that haven't gone quite so well? Um, what have I not experienced that hasn't gone well, I guess, is my question, you know, <laughs> because obviously um, every year there's always that risk of blight, which I had, you know, pretty dramatically last year. And it took out pretty much all my outdoor tomatoes, except for um, the Mountain Magic a variety, which has some pretty good level of blight resistance, it seems. Um, I've never grown that one. So no. Oh, yeah. No, that, that's is that blight resistant? It is, yes. Well, you know what, I, to be honest with you, I didn't grow it because it was blight resistant, but I then realized last year when it was blight resistant, when I looked on the packet, yes, it did say it was blight resistant, <laughs> but uh, it is mountain magic. Uh, and I, I got a free trial packet um, from Thompson and Morgan, I mean, years ago, yeah. you know, and I I'd grow it every year, but it's a medium sized tomato that grows quite well outdoors and in the greenhouse as well. But um, it's, it's, um, it has, yeah, it, it did survive the blight, you know. It was still standing whilst all the uh, San Marzanos were just, and Romas were completely obliterated mm-hmm. um, and looking terrible. But um, that, you know, they were not bad, yeah, they they stood up. Um, but, you know, um, I do I do have terrible disasters in the garden. And, um, 
you see, my grandmother was actually a, a subsistence farmer back in the 1940s, 50s in Malaysia, mm-hmm. a long time ago, obviously. I mean, she's, you know, she's passed away a long time ago now, but she, she was um, a, a single mother that kind of raised five kids off the land. Yeah. Um, and, you know, really sort of, you know, had, I mean, if there was a dust, disaster there in the in the farm, then, you know, it was a real disaster. So I think quite often when I'm, you know, kind of, kind of feeling a bit like, oh, no, you know, the caterpillars have got to, to my brassicas or yeah. <laughs> sort of like, you know, the flea beetles have got my rocket or something. Then I, I sort of, you know, just think back to, to my grandmother and, and think, you know, gosh, I mean, she would have had to be dealing with like, you know, keeping the tigers out the compound or like, <laughs> sorry, just, you know, or be like climbing up the mango tree and be like swerving from the pythons, you know, yeah. like just, it does you put know, it into perspective a bit, doesn't it? <laughs> it? It does, doesn't it? I mean, I know it was a few years ago, but I think back then, you know, it's just a completely different experience, you know, having sort of like monkeys, you know, come through and, yeah, and you know, pinch all the crops. I mean, imagine if you had a monkey, you know, come through your greenhouse or something, it would just be a complete disaster, you know. Yeah. I couldn't imagine. I couldn't imagine dealing with one monkey, you know, let alone like a whole troop of monkeys. Just, yeah. <laughs> sort of, uh, you know, wreaking havoc on the the allotment or the plot. Um, yeah. So I do, I do sort of think, yeah. But um, I have got this strange thing though. I um, you know, when you bring your um, vegetables in from the garden and you put them straight to the fridge in the summer because yeah. you know it's hot, and you sometimes you don't have time to wash or process them. And then, well, one year I had um, I had like um water kind of pooling down the bottom of the fridge, and I thought what is this? You know, there must be a block somewhere. And I went to look and I don't know if you've ever had this with your fridges, um, but there's like a drainage hole up the back. Mm. Did you know this? Yeah. So there's a drainage hole. So I went to investigate and there was this slug that had just completely blocked up the drainage hole. I, I was, I mean, I can't be the only you know, a home grower gardener who has had this problem. This <laughs> <laughs> accidentally put a slug in their fridge. Yeah, yeah well, and, and also getting to the drain hole and blocking the the entire yeah. system, you know. It's one thing to have a... slug was like, it is yeah. cold this summer. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's bizarre, isn't it? I mean, I, I, I really want to hear from people who have had that experience because I don't think I'm the only person. I really... Yeah, yeah it would be good to hear what... Um, what strange garden pests other people have found in their fridges as well it would be it would be an interesting survey to do exactly yeah exactly and it survived as well I mean it was still alive you know it it had just decided to to park itself in that drainage hole and then you know my whole system was just blocked so that just feels like such a imagine if you'd had to call somebody out to like take a look at the fridge and then they realized that was what it was (laughs) oh yes I know exactly oh sorry (laughs) <laughs> it's just a slug how silly oh my goodness yeah, exactly. oh dear uh, but but if you're talking about real uh, sort of uh, problems uh one thing I do have a problem with is every year I try to um you know if you look on social media there are all these people trying to propagate from store-bought sweet potatoes mm-hmm. have you seen that where they put it in a glass of water and they try to get it to root? yes well I um I've never got mine to root like it it just they just refuse you know and they just go moldy and then every year it's the same so oh no um, I don't know what the 
a secret is. <laughs> yeah, I just bought my sweet potato slips straight from the garden centre last year, so there's no faffing around with that. Um, and, Absolutely. And they seem to be pretty good, so maybe that's the answer. I think, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Don't be a cheapskate, just go and buy them. Thank you. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. <laughs> um, so moving you on from the mishaps in the garden, we always like to ask if you have any cheeky tips or quick hacks that you'd be able to share with the listeners yeah um so quick hacks let's see um so I guess I would like to talk about my cucumbers mm-hmm. um because the way I grow my cucumbers um I like to grow cucumbers vertically so onward and upward um and uh you know just kind of support them with a bamboo cane uh structure but then I also like to build, um, you know, kind of like a trellis support structure, which is quite difficult to explain without visual aids. But the way I like to build my support structure is similar to if you can imagine um, a multi-story car park uh-huh. with like multiple levels. <laughs> so if you can imagine a multi-story car park with multiple levels, um, that's how I build my structure using bamboo canes. And then I drape like chicken wire or like wire mesh across each level. Mm. Um, and then I allow my cucumber vines to kind of grow over the top of the mesh. And what happens is as the fruit develops, the fruits hang downwards through the mesh and all the leaves are held back above the mesh. That's such a good idea. And so it makes for really easy picking. Yeah. Yeah. If you can, you can visualize it, right, Mm -hmm. using the multi-level car park. Yeah. Um, And so that way I can kind of reach up and and kind of pick all my cucumbers and I can see exactly where they are, you know, uh, without having those rogue cucumbers that, just you know end up hidden under the foliage and you're and you've, you're there wondering why is my plant stopped growing uh, producing fruit and then you realize there's like one the size of your arm you know <laughs> hiding under some foliage somewhere so, but this way all the leaves are kept above the mesh and all the fruits are beneath the mesh so I can see them all I imagine and that then, looks really impressive as well the way with them all hanging down like that well exactly exactly I don't know of a better way to describe it really I don't know what this kind of structure is called it's almost like a I don't know you might have a better <laughs> description uh it's like a, a like a pagoda or a, um, yeah I can imagine I can I can visualize what you're what you're describing absolutely well exactly but I found also that the only way to kind of be able to train um, a cucumber vine effectively across you know where you want to go is to 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 pinch out side shoots um and I guess it's loosely the the cordon method you know uh, supporting the main stem and pinching out side shoots mm-hmm. uh, loosely, you know, because as the vine grows, I tend to um, pinch out side shoots as they emerge. In fact, I don't really like side shoots because I find they just get, you know, very wild and rampant and it just makes everything very unruly. So um, I, I tend to pinch them out and then I can train the the vine where I want it to go. Mm-hmm. I mean, the only problem is with pinching out side shoots is that the plant just grows and grows I mean it's like a jack in the beanstalk situation it could reach the sky if you you didn't cut it back but I I so that's why I have this multi-story kind of um car park where I allow it to kind of I train it across the level the top level and then you know down the the lower levels Mm. I mean I stop at three you know I don't have you know more than like two or three levels (laughs) it's you know it's a big system otherwise I mean there's only so many cucumbers you can eat you know (laughs) well exactly (laughs) And it's not the size of a multi-story car park. I mean, it's, it's obviously a scaled-down version. <laughs> but um, I, I prune um, 
As I'm growing it, though, I, I also prune back a lot of the foliage. So I pinch out side shoots. I'm, I'm ruthless. I prune back, you know, the foliage all, you know, all the way, you know, sort of, especially in the lower parts of the plant yeah. where you are, you know, you're at risk of getting soil-borne diseases or uh, powdery mildew, um, that kind of thing. So I keep the plants quite lean and mean. I am quite ruthless, I, I must admit, you know, when it comes to I pruning. like that, though. I think that's, it sounds like it's working. And um, I think often when I'm doing stuff in the garden, I can be a bit hesitant to do that kind of thing. So I'm like, is it going to kill something off? Or And I'm sure there'll be people listening that feel similarly, but sometimes I think you've just got to make that call and make that decision. Yeah. It just sounds like that's what you do. Yeah, it does. And I have noticed, so in previous years, I have always had powdery mildew on my cucumbers um, due to a lack of ventilation and, and excess foliage, really. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in the last year when I, and I, you know, last year or two, when I've really sort of maintained the foliage, you know, I never got powdery mildew. Um, as soon as I saw that there was any sort of suspicion of powdery mildew, I would remove the leaves, but, but I didn't get, you know, it sort of taking over the greenhouse as sometimes it can. And, uh, and I think, um, you know, it, it really helped also, I think just removing the foliage is, is a way to get your plants to be really productive as well, because, the energy isn't diverted onto this kind of excess foliage growth. It's it's on the f- fruit and, uh, you know, it's on the flowering and the fruiting. Yeah. Um, so it, it, it's a good thing, I, I personally think, mm. you know. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so it will be really interesting to see if other people are going to be trying the multi-storey car park cucumber <laughs> structure now. And we'll, we'd love to see anybody that tries it if we'd love to see pictures on social media if you need a visual guide as well you're you blog don't you jojo at jojogardencook.co.uk so you can go and take a look on there and you've got a guide to how to do that right yes that that's right yes exactly and and i think um the name multi-story car park is, is probably a good <laughs> good name i can't think of any other name to call it that's how it'll always be known from now on <laughs> yeah. exactly you've got to invent you've got to in- invent some sort of horticultural technique in your lifetime I think yes. yeah <laughs> this is your Why not? it'll be your legacy <laughs> exactly oh dear and <laughs> um, so we like to tie up our interviews with our guests by asking I know it's often quite difficult to narrow down this question but what would you say is the biggest lesson that you've learned since you've been growing your own wow so so um so biggest is <laughs> that that's you know this I'll probably um sorry I sorry I don't have anything sort of really profound or um you know sort of um, <laughs> you know as you say the legacy thing um <laughs> I would love Some to, to have a legacy will be fine but, as well. it doesn't yeah. have to be there. I will say, actually, speaking of legacies, um, you know, I don't. So a few years ago, I I was, I participated in a show on the BBC um, called the Allotment Challenge. And, yes, we were um, just talking about this before you turned yes, up. Actually. and you right. were runner up, weren't you? I that is right. Yes, yeah. so I was the finalist on the show. But um, I I was just thinking when I was talking about inventing techniques when we were talking about that was um, when when I was on the show. I think the first week we had to plant um we had to grow potatoes and Mm -hmm. actually I'll be very honest it was my first time growing potatoes like ever (laughs) (laughs) yeah and so they were and I had to do it on on national television you know so I was very nervous and um and they said to me well this week we're gonna have to film you know you you know something about your potatoes and I honestly I had no time to do research at all 
you know, and I said, um, I asked my husband if he had any tips because, you know, he's British and, you know, British grow potatoes, right? So, <laughs> and he said when, sorry, I, I'm not British, by the way. So, you know, I'm, I'm Malaysian and I grew up in Australia. But, but my, um, so anyway, I asked him and he said, well, when I was a child, my dad um, would take us out to the, the potatoes and, you know, and to see whether there were any potatoes under the soil, he would say, you know, let's tickle the potatoes. And that is basically, if you can imagine your fingers just tickling at the soil, you know, you tickle the soil and then you, you know, and then you reveal, you know, the potatoes underneath. And so I literally, I thought he was being serious that this was like a British technique, you know. So I went actually on the show, um, you know, as they were filming me and they said, well, what do you want to do today? And I said, I would like to, um, I would like to show you, you know, I would like to tickle my potatoes today. <laughs> and, and so, and so I went on there just talking about this, this whole, um, you know, how, how to tickle your potatoes, thinking that it was a real sort of thing. But <laughs> anyway, sorry, that, that is, that was embarrassing, but sorry, the biggest takeaway I took from the show, because we had access to a horticultural um, expert and she taught me, um, something really important which is and I still do this today um it's um she introduced um you know the concept of, of feeding your your plants seaweed mm-hmm. um she used um like a maxi crop seaweed fertilizer mm-hmm. and yeah. so you you know if you feed that um on your kind of as, as soon as the seedlings appear um you can start you know feeding them with seaweed to in, encourage kind of good root growth and uh strong plants and then as soon as flowers appear say like on a tomato or you know a courgette or something then you can start feeding them with tomato feed and tomato feed you know uh works quite well and you can apply that to to most i guess vegetables mm-hmm. that flower and fruit um and and those are the two things products that she kind of um, introduced to to us and we were told to use and actually you know with tomato feed I I, I do that weekly and sometimes you know twice a week even mm-hmm. um, and I think it really really has made a difference to my sort of um, gardening you know because before I, I probably you know didn't really feed but now I, I actively feed you know tomatoes and peppers especially peppers um, and tomatoes and, and and it's worked wonders you know I think those were were really good tips actually mm. um, yeah. Oh, so there is one other thing that I wanted to share with everyone, and it's a quick tip on how to sow coriander from seed very quickly and effectively. And some years, you know, in the past, I've had issues because the coriander seeds just would not germinate. Um, but I found a really quick and easy tip. I, I saw it on YouTube, actually, so I didn't invent this. But uh, <laughs> So I... Um, I, I discovered that what you do is you put the coriander seeds between two sheets of kitchen roll oh, yeah. and then you get like a rolling pin and you gently, gently roll across the top <laughs> of the seeds and they split in half. Yeah. And then you just sprinkle those into where you're going to grow them, direct into the soil or into a pot. Um, and because what happens is I think the coriander seeds they need to be split for the seeds to actually, you know, come out. To, to sort of kick them into action yeah. of, of germinating. Yes, because the seeds, because what you see, you know, the, those round things, I think, are the husk. Right. You know, it's the husk. It's not the, the seeds are on the inside. And when they split, you'll see that they typically have like two seeds on the inside. And then if you just sprinkle those, they will germinate in no time. Oh, that's such a great tip. Yeah, I, I discovered this, as I say on YouTube, you know. <laughs> There are lots of good things on there. I always go on there and watch those videos and I find out quite a lot of information on there. It's, um, it's 
it's a handy resource. It is, isn't it? I know. I know it sounds silly to talk about social media, um, you know, but these days I think you can learn so much from, you know, YouTube or Instagram or Facebook yeah. or whatever. Definitely. That's it. Especially at the moment, because, um, you know, when maybe not seeing as many people and you might talk to your allotment neighbor about something, but when, you know, you're not necessarily seeing each other so much, now there's this place where you can go and find those people that are growing stuff and are becoming experts at growing this stuff because they've been growing it for years. So it's um, it's worth listening to, to people that have been growing those things and having successes. Mm. Absolutely. I agree. I know. I think it's great. Those are just such good resources. The only thing I would warn against is sometimes these like five garden hacks that you must know, you know, yes. <laughs> videos where you just sort of think, um, I don't know about really like putting a strawberry in the soil and being like, I want to have strawberries this year. Yeah. Like, you know? <laughs> like sometimes the hack um, is more effort than what it would be if you just grew it in a more traditional way or that kind of thing. Exactly. Exactly. You know, so uh, there's sort of like, you have to use a bit of um... use your judgment exactly yeah oh <laughs> well thank you so much for joining us and um sharing some really interesting new ideas that we hadn't had before so that's excellent yeah thank you so much and blake shall we go and chat to marshall's garden yeah let's do that Hello, Mike. How are you today? I'm all right. Good afternoon. Yes, very well. How are you too? Yeah, good, good. Although it's a bit drizzly again today here. I think um, I'm ready for ready for spring now and it's just around the corner, isn't it? Yes, it, it feels like it's continually around the corner at the moment. It's gone a bit cool again, hasn't it? And not, uh, we've had the odd warm day, but it's cooled off this week a bit. But uh, it's got to come at some point. It's got to come. It has. We're holding on for it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um. So you're going to be talking to us today about the origins of some plants. Mm -hmm. So just to get us started, would you mind telling us a little bit about how the origins of plants determine where they grow? Yeah, it was just it was just trying to think a bit of a broader sort of thought pattern in the, in the garden of actually why you put plants in certain areas. Um, and it's not necessarily because we're told to buy a book. It's it's to do with the fact that where they originated from, uh, from hundreds or even centuries ago, is where they want to be in that place in the garden is because that's where they've basically been created in nature mm. and through years and you know centuries of, of growth that's where their that's where their sort of base sort of DNA is is embedded in, um, and it. it we're quite lucky i suppose in the uk because we have we're quite a, a northerly climate but we have the atlantic effect on us so we do have that sort of seasonality between the winters and the springs and the summers mm -hmm. uh so there's quite a wide range of plants we can grow in 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 most of most of areas of of the uk um and i just thought it'd be, it'd be interesting to look at sort of what why plants grow in certain areas um yeah you know we, we've got herbs quite a lot of herbs are, are grown in the uk but they're Mediterranean plants and they like to be uh, they like to be baked they like to be really hot but they like to be relatively infertile soil uh, and that's where they've grown in nature and then when we're told to plant your your herbs in bright sunny spots they don't need too much fertilizer you know they need to be an open drainage it's 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 just trying to replicate what they do in the wild almost uh, or, or where where the breeding line has come from um, you know mountainous areas uh, there's a lot of plants that we use, alpine plants, which come from mountainous areas. They like it dry, 
or they can like it it can be a dry sort of side of the of the mountain but it can be a wet uplands uh, it's usually very fine soil it's not very you know there's not much in it so again when you're planting your alpines open open up the soil put a lot of grit in um it's it's trying to replicate where that plant is grown in nature and where it's actually uh, almost created itself from uh, and you just try and replicate that in your garden you know it's sort of north south east and west is is quite often you look it up what yeah is it north facing plant is it an east way it's not because it's it's not north facing in in you know up a mountain somewhere in the himalayas it's just because a north facing part of our garden is usually cold um you know it doesn't get the sun uh it's 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 not got bright sunlight on it all day that's not because it's a plant for north facing it's the north facing part of your garden replicates where that plant is best and happiest and where it grows really mm-hmm. uh, i know it's difficult to try and place and to understand but it's, it's quite good to, to have a search around and see where plants do come from originally and that'll help you site them in the garden but it's it's just trying to replicate that and and really the soil conditions you know alkaline al- acidity uh, open structure very organic rich rich soils are usually where you know if it's woodland you know plants that love the woodland sort of environment where they've got all the leaf leaf litter and leaf drop and it's very there's a lot of humus about uh, you know and they're, they're trying to grow in that area and you're trying to put them in that area so they don't want a bright sunlight because they don't get it in the wooded area. The trees shade them through the summer, you know, and they're quite well protected in the winter. So it's just trying to replicate that really. And it's, it's just something to think about differently when you're actually potting up your plants. What, why am I potting them up? Why do they go in the greenhouse? Why do they need open structure? Why do they need fertilizer? Really? It's just, it's just giving them where they're, let's say their base DNA is actually just crying out to be in that position because that's where they come from in nature really so diving straight in i see that you've got on your list of ones that you're going to talk about today tomatoes so would you like to tell us a little bit of background about them and how that um can uh kind of inform where you want to grow them in in your own garden in the uk yeah i mean tomatoes um you know evidence shows they've been around for for two two and a half thousand years as far as the sort of archaeological evidence they've found sort of um seeds and they've been able to date them and uh they found that most of them are originated sort of central central america the mexico area uh sort of the andes area mm-hmm. and and the aztecs have been found to uh use them 1400 years ago they found evidence that the aztecs actually used to eat them oh, wow. uh and and that that's quite you would you would you know that, that's normal almost because that's what was in their you know their local environment it was a small bush apparently uh it was about i think it was about the size of a pea it's not really the tomato we would know most people think it was probably yellow yellow so it's a yellow small pea-shaped plant that's not it's not exactly the tomato that we sort of love and adore but <laughs> that's that's where it comes from you know um and then it's it's believed that that, that obviously the, the sort of uh, european um the, the europeans uh, travelers that went over there in sort of the 16th century uh, they discovered it and they 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 brought it back probably on the ships as well it was introduced to europe about that time uh it seems to be a lot of uh italians took it up and it was it probably grew quite well over there because that's a sort of warmer climate um and the italians really took on the the, the first cultivation of, of varieties and, and probably the breeding uh more human intervention into the breeding side of it and then it spread across northern europe and into, into the uk and you know it, that gives you some reason why we have uh mostly indoor greenhouse varieties outdoor garden varieties but the in, indoor varieties you know you can imagine being in the andes in the middle of central america it's hot uh it's quite baking um 
they they love the warmth so you put them in the greenhouse you know but over the centuries or probably over the probably over the last hundred years or so of breeding um you've got ones that are a bit slightly a bit more hardier can go in the garden and and now you've got you know as many that can go in the garden as they can go in the greenhouse so you don't you don't need to grow them in the greenhouse but uh, you can see where where they come from is why they love hot and, and again it's things am i putting a plant in the greenhouse because that's what i've been told no because it's it's where it normally grows in the wild it's it's hot it's humid um you know and if you can replicate that that's that's when you get the best out of them but the breeding you, you've got this origins of the plants then you've got the breeding of the plants uh which has just expanded almost uh, where the best place they can so you can get indoor you get outdoor i'd say outdoor outdoor tomatoes as well as, and, and they'll they'll both grow perfectly well in in our in our conditions now but yeah originally came from sort of central america in in the andes and the aztecs were eating them several hundred years ago and enjoying them as much as we do that's so interesting um, and would you be able to tell us a little bit about the origin of strawberries as well another obviously very popular crop in the allotment garden yeah i mean it's 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 almost one of our you would say it's you know english strawberries it's um it's it's what we everyone knows them they recognize them they they probably grow them in the garden um there's been wild strawberries for for found about in many parts of the world uh the actual sort of fragaria vesca type um is, is the wild strawberry uh, and it's 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 found in north america it's found in latin america uh and they reckon that the sort of the the origins of our uh cultivated variety was was a cross between those two and it became the fragaria Ananasa, um, which ananas is is like the type of the name that you get for pineapple because some people thought it looked like a small pineapple, whether these are true or not. But it's it's quite fun to think whether they were. <laughs> um, again, that sort of arrived in in Europe as the travellers back came back from those sort of continents as they well discovered them, even though they've been there for hundreds of centuries. But uh, you know, we landed there, we we looked at the plants they were eating, we took back the plants, we brought them into the Europe, uh, and and it seems to be. The Italians picked up on the on the tomatoes. The French picked up on uh, on strawberries, um, and then it, it probably arrived in Britain around sort seventeen of hundreds as well. Uh, there was it, it seemed to be it took a while to get off, but I think the Victorians really picked up on it, and certainly with their Victorian garden uh, or walled gardens, where it's a bit more protection probably, mm-hmm. uh, and the cultivation and the great fun, the cross pollination and getting that sort of thing. And and I was reading about um, Wimbledon. Yeah, they arrived at Wimbledon in the eighteen seventies. Not sure they came with double cream, but um, <laughs> you know, th- th- there's evidence that they were they were, you know. Uh, I, I suppose in a way, you know, when strawberries are around, it's that June time, July time. Uh, if you've got them in the garden and there's a big there's a big tennis event going on, you know you can see how how that became sort of synonymous with Wimbledon, really. Uh, but yeah, interesting stuff on strawberries. <laughs> um, so crop number three on your list is the Jerusalem artichoke. Yeah, so is this I, from I, Jerusalem? I like this is going to be the first question. I was going to ask you: Is Jerusalem artichoke? So is it from Jerusalem? No. Is it an artichoke? No. So why on earth is it called Jerusalem <laughs> artichoke? You know, um, it's 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 interesting to read about, and it, it's. This is one of those ones that I don't think anyone could really pin down where the name come from. Um, they reckon that the, the, the tuba has some taste of artichokes, um, and that there's various tales about uh, the Italians found it, um, and they uh, they called uh, a sunflower um, girasol, which is uh, I probably pronounced it wrong, but 
does that sound like Jerusalem, Jerusalem? You know, maybe we've mistranslated it over the years, but it, it's an actual, it's, it's part of the sunflower family uh, rather than an artichoke that we'd expect. So, you know, it's Helianthus tuberosa. So um, you can see why there's, there's, there's some overlap there, but it'd be great to think that it's just an Italian translation to come from Jerusalem. Um, <laughs> and, and the tubers taste of artichoke. So, yeah. Jerusalem artichoke, what's wrong with it? It's a great name. Everyone knows about it anyway. Um, it was native to North America uh, and it's been around in Europe since the 1600s. Because it's a sunflower, it needs a bit more heat, you know, and it needs to be warm in the garden. But you can see why it, it would appeal to our sort, of, our sort of gardens, you know, North America. It's not too far north, but North America is similar in a way of our climates. And again, it's adapted, you know, as you plant it, you get the plants that that can survive they get bred on and they become more tolerant to to probably various or variable climates rather than just the just the native climate it was bought from so yeah that's a an interesting one as far as its name <laughs> i do like the idea that um they got their name just from somebody that didn't speak italian over here yeah. and the italian person <laughs> yeah. naming them and, and getting it wrong who knows if that is true but it'd be nice to think it, it was true <laughs> absolutely yeah absolutely then this brings us on to um the fourth crop on your list which is cherries yeah cherries cherries in history on it but it's quite um i wouldn't say it's it's not exotic but if sometimes i think people think it's 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 not something that they grow because maybe they think it's a bit hard to grow mm. or maybe it does feel a bit um sluts you know apples pears in this country is fine cherries absolutely do very well in this country though so it was interesting to look at that really and and they originally sort of in the Asia Minor area, the Turkey, the Black Seas, the Caspian Seas uh, around there. But the, the wild cherry is, is is found at most continents really across Europe um, and probably over thousands of years. So that's that sort of native wild cherry um, that's been around for a long time. But it, it was thought that the, the sort of human uh, cultivation of the varieties was, was, was done around the Turkey area. Um, and that the sour cherry name... Prunus serratus uh, is a word that's sort of been created from the, the Caucasus mountains. You know, you can see where the sort of words overlap and the, 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 the letters overlap there. Um, so that has some links to that sort of area. Mm-hmm. You've got the Greeks writing about cherries 300 BC. Um, you know, so the, the, it was obviously a concentration of the wild cherries in that area and it's been cultivated. And, um, you know, it, it's 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 not too fertile around there. So you can see why, you know, that, that they really grow quite well in our country. Um, maybe further south, probably many years ago, it was felt it was you had to be slightly warmer than you were. But again, over the cultivation um, and we've we've bred cherries and that can go further and further north. And it is interesting that when it arrived in, in England, it was mostly in the southeast and in Kent. There was a big, big concentration of, of cherry growing areas and still is actually if you go down there there still is a huge amount of cherries grown down there and it, I, the more breeding every time you breed a, a, a different variety or a, 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 a different um, sort of benefit to that plant it grows slightly more north or slightly in a better soil or slightly sli- slightly more variable so you can mm-hmm. just as the years go they just expand the breeding so um yeah we can all we can all enjoy a, enjoy a cherry tree in the garden absolutely no that's really great um and that also brings us on to the final crop of your five, um, which is pumpkin. Yeah, I, I, I thought pumpkins, uh, again, it's one of those ones that uh, is quite traditional. It's traditional at Halloween. I would, wouldn't say how to turn that. I think Halloween is, is, as a festival has really exploded, certainly sort of or more so in the last 
uh, dozens of years as far as the sort of American, American influential on it uh, or influence on it and become much more of a, you know, it's a dressing up. There's so much that the, it, there's a lot more about it now than it was maybe when I was young and it literally was you buy a pumpkin and you carve it and you went trick or treating and that was it. Now, you know, there's there's so much more to it, which is fantastic. It's great to have, uh, you know, to get to have that fun in sort of that time when there's not much going on. But pumpkins, they were sort of North America, um, the southern states, um, southern states of America, North Mexico. So that's sort of slightly warmer area. Um, they were found over there several thousand years ago actually and again according to sort of what archaeologists can think they were quite small quite hard bitter tasting sour tasting mm. again not not the sort of fantastic you know 20 kilo bright orange pumpkins that we we know today <laughs> um they were they, they were used by the native native americans and again i think the european settlers would have seen what they're using on the boats the boats come back to europe and uh, and you know it's introduced into europe sort of 500 years ago uh, it's 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 grown wildly. I think it was it's only it was a bit like strawberries and Wimbledon. It's become synonymous with uh, um, Halloween because it, that's when you harvest it. You know, it's that late October time, and that's when it comes about. Um, when I was sort of investigating it, and the link with Ireland and 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 uh, turnips being used or root vegetables being used, they carved them out and made them into lanterns, uh, which is quite you know you can sort of see that happening. So they would have carved them out, made them into lanterns. These are sort of uh, turnips, root vegetables that they would have done. There's a lot of Irish settlers went over to America. Um, you can see why the link would be, well, you know, we're over in America. Let's carve the pumpkins for lanterns. They come back, come back to sort of Europe and Northern Europe. And before you know it, we've got carved pumpkins going on for Halloween. So that that was uh, that's an interesting one as, as far as it's grown. North Mexico, southern states is a bit warmer. It needs that longer days. I think that you know that that's why it harvests around late October. It just needs that length of days to grow it. It likes to be fertile, likes to be watered, uh, which you can you can see in that southern states of America, that sort of environment. Uh, and hey, how it's 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 ready and looking fantastic around um, you know Halloween time, which you know the, the sort of a common acceptance that Halloween is sort of All Saints Day or All Hallows Eve or. Mm. pagan festivals whichever way you want to see it but it's that turning of the of the time from the end of summer to sort of into autumn maybe looking at looking back on the year um yeah and, and everyone knows pumpkins now but uh again one of those things it was small hard not for, not very tasty uh found in northern mexico you know so <laughs> and all of a sudden we, we've got hundreds of uh, you know there are literally hundreds of varieties now all bright orange um and all different colors um so it's yes yeah, just fascinating how these plants that that originate in the wild from these places several hundred years ago and now it's sort of common part of our english garden really yeah um, no, so yeah it's, it's, it's interesting to think about it and if you can dig around where the origins where these actual plants started from you can start to understand why you need like i say the different environments that they grow in and uh, and the reason why we get behind it so yeah hopefully it's a, a few a, a few bits of interesting information there yeah that's so interesting and um thank you so much for sharing that with us today no it's been really great to chat to you again um and for anybody who is looking for their veg seeds flower seeds plug plants anything else um can find an amazing selection at marshallsgarden.com um so thanks again for your time today and we will speak to you again soon um, but for now, Blake, shall we go and talk about some gardening news? Yeah.
Hi, Blake. How are you doing? I am doing good. I've been reading this morning, pretty much all morning, because I, you know, when you just get into something and then you can't stop. So yeah. I've been, haven't stopped reading about RHS Hilltop, which is, have you heard about this? It's their new um, flagship science laboratory that they're building. Yes, I have heard about it. But as you have been reading about it in great detail, I would you like to an expert take in this away subject matter. the details? <laughs> yeah, so for anybody that doesn't know, it's going to be based at Wisley. Um, and it's essentially a brand new a swanky building that they've put together which um where they're going to do lots of pioneering research mm. uh, specifically into like climate change and pollution and um, all those really important subject matters that are a big part of life in 2021 Amazing. so uh, it sounds really really exciting um but what's good about it is that they're going to open it up to the public so once things can reopen and i think this is due to open at the end of june mm-hmm. um you'll be able to actually go and look around it and there's going to be like three new gardens there one's a well-being garden uh, a wildlife garden and a world food garden so that sounds quite exciting in itself yeah and um I guess they'll have like exhibitions and stuff on surrounding the scientific research that they're doing there they had a little video on their website which was drone footage um taken from above like an aerial view of the building of this like breathtaking futuristic architecture that they've got going on with it um it looks incredible and just really impressive so I think a lot of people are going to be excited to go and see it um if you're in and around Surrey area and you regularly go to Wisley you'll probably be already have it in on your kind of list of things that you want to do but even if you're not and you want you know when we can travel a bit more and stuff you might want to go there it sounds really really exciting yeah I think we should do a press trip I know I was thinking this like all morning I've been like right how can we go and have a little (laughs) look around but um it's not opening until the end of June so we've got a bit of time to plan that but I think yeah team grow your own trip there would be fun I'm quite excited about the world foods garden actually that sounds really really interesting I mean I think knowing us as we know us if anything yeah. can drive us to try new things, it's if you can grow something that's tasty to eat. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, but speaking of inspiring things in the garden, yeah. I wanted to speak to you about the school gardening success plan. Have you heard about this? Uh, I'm not sure I have. Basically, Lee Conley, aka the Skinny Jean Gardener, has launched the school gardening success plan. Um, oh, which, I think I did see something about this when I was scrolling through Twitter the other day, but I haven't yeah, really looked into it's it. It's an absolutely amazing campaign. Um, basically, he would like to give every primary school child a space to learn and grow by 2025. And the aim is to give 30,000 UK primary schools the capacity to teach children to grow your own and that would be offering complete toolkit and support package it's affordable accessible and aimed at improving people's physical health mental well-being and behavior that's such a good idea so is it the sort of thing where a school can bid for the resources um or how does it work from that point of view they're actually looking to have by 2025 at least one school gardening success plan in every primary school in the uk um so that would mean every child um regardless of whatever space they have at home or anything like yeah. that will be able to take part and learn to grow and have time outside which is just such a great thing um it actually launched on the 8th of March 
But you can find out more about it at skinnygenegardener.co.uk forward slash school success. So yeah, anybody who's got school-aged children in their lives, I think this will be a really positive, really great initiative. Yeah, I'm excited to hear more about it as, you know, over the coming months and years to see how it how it plans out. Yeah, absolutely. Well, shall I let you get back to reading about the new RHS space? And (laughs) I have got some jobs on the plot. If you have a greenhouse, you'll know even these undercover spaces aren't safe from weeds. As the weather becomes milder, you'll notice weeds shooting up in borders. Remove them as soon as you see them pop up as this will help control them before they take hold. In the fruit garden, it's a wise idea to hand pollinate any early blooms on peach and nectarine trees, as pollinators won't yet be out in form, so it's still a little bit cold for them. You can do this with a soft artist's paintbrush, gently transferring pollen from flower to flower. Container growers can start successional batches of leaves. Lettuce, rocket, mizunas and the like can be sown every fortnight for continuous crops throughout the year. As you'll be getting new veg in the ground soon, it's important to make sure that last year's spent crops have been removed before you get cracking. Removing and disposing of this garden matter helps to discourage any overwintering pests and diseases that could still be lurking. On the subject of new crops, it's a good idea to assess your space and what you want to eat before you dive straight in with the seed packets. It's a really exciting time, but you'll want to make sure you don't get carried away and end up with more veg than you have space for. I think we're all guilty of that from time to time. Anyway, we hope you have a lovely week in the garden. And until next time, from all of us here, happy growing. Thanks again for joining us for this episode of The Dirt in partnership with Marshalls. Marshalls Garden is an online gardening shop where it's easy to find everything you need for gardening all in one place. Founded over 75 years ago, its heritage is in supplying vegetable seeds and plants, including seed potatoes, onions, fruit plants and trees to grow your own gardeners. The company's passion, expertise and excellence continues in 2021, where it will launch over 130 new seed varieties. Specialists in garden care, Marshalls has the best range of compost, fertilisers, controls and hardware you will find online. Order from the easy to use website or from the delightful catalogue for convenient delivery direct to your door. You'll find lots of help and advice on the website, including growing guides, seasonal advice, monthly jobs and inspiration for projects to do in the garden. Just visit marshallsgarden.com for more. And don't forget to subscribe for free to make sure you never miss an episode of The Dirt. We'd love it if you rate and review wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to tell all your lovely garden and allotment neighbours where to find us. Plus, as a special treat... We've got an exclusive Grow Your Own magazine offer just for the Dirt listeners. Head to growfruitandveg.co.uk forward slash gpod7, that's G-P-O-D and the number 7, or call 0800 904 7000 and quote gpod7 to receive seven issues of our magazine Grow Your Own straight to your door for just $29.99. That's $11.94 off. Every issue is edited by me and the team and is packed with gardening advice and jobs to tick off your list and a big bonus. 
Each magazine comes with a selection of free seeds, so you can get growing straight away. Check the episode notes for details and terms. And on a final exciting note, we're on the hunt for podcast guests, and the next one could be you or someone you know. If you, a friend or a family member, has some great gardening advice, dirty gardening secrets, or funny plot disasters they'd like to share, let us know by emailing thedirt at growfruitandveg.co.uk.